This is the world. A co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston. Hello, I'm Tony Khan in Boston. And I'm Eddie Mayer in London. Today on The World, it's Tuesday and all eyes are on New Hampshire, including those who are watching the presidential race for the first time. The state of the European Union, according to the French, that is. Also a modern-day witch hunt in Ghana. Something that is supposed to be not within the norm. Like if you have big, red, short eyes, you're a witch. And vivid and colorful are not the only words being used to describe this year's carnival in Rio. But first, the news. For the world, this is Christina Zorich in the BBC Newsroom in London. The NATO Secretary General Javier Solana and Secretary of State Warren Christopher have both expressed confidence that the Bosnian peace process is back on track. In Bosnia itself, the first high-level meeting in almost two weeks between the NATO-led implementation force and the Bosnian Serb command took place. But in Sarajevo, Bosnian Serbs from areas due to be handed over to the Muslim Croat Federation are in a state of confusion following an announcement by their own authorities that they're to be evacuated within three days. Jim Muir is in Sarajevo. In the suburb of Vogosca, where the handover to the Muslim-led government is to begin on Friday, crowds of anxious Serbs gathered at the mayor's office in the early morning, wondering how they were to leave through driving snow and without vehicles being provided. The mayor, Rajko Koprovica, said that virtually all of the 6,000 or so Serbs in his area wanted to get out. Though a mass displacement of the Serbs now seems inevitable, officers from the International Peace Forces, I-4, and an international police task force are trying to persuade people that it's safe to stay on. Jim Muir, Sarajevo. There's been a steady turnout of voters in New Hampshire, where the nation's first presidential primary is being held. On the Republican side, it's turned into a fierce race between the top three candidates, Bob Dole, Pat Buchanan, and Lamar Alexander. Some analysts are calling it the closest contest for years. A judge has decided that the two men accused of last year's bombing in Oklahoma City cannot receive a fair trial in the state. He's ordered that Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols, who face charges of murder and conspiracy, should be tried in Denver. Two senior Iraqi defectors and their families have arrived back in Iraq six months after they fled to Jordan calling for the overthrow of President Saddam Hussein. An Iraqi spokesman says they've been given a formal pardon. Kumar Malhotra reports. The Iraqi statement said Hussein Kamel had written to President Saddam Hussein on Saturday, asking to be allowed to return to Baghdad. It said that following a meeting of two of Iraq's top decision-making bodies, it had been decided to agree to his request. The statement said this was in line with an amnesty policy for Iraqis who had fled abroad and then asked for forgiveness. It added that Hussein Kamel would be treated as an ordinary citizen a phrase whose exact meaning is not clear. Kumar Malhotra, Amman. Two more members of the Indian government have resigned as a result of a deepening bribery scandal. Both stepped down after their names were linked to the scandal, although neither has been charged with any offence. Andrew Whitehead reports from Delhi. The latest bribery allegations have, in the past six weeks, claimed more political scalps than any other scandal since India gained independence almost half a century ago. Ten of the country's top politicians have been charged under the anti-corruption laws. Three of them were cabinet ministers, all promptly resigned while protesting their innocence. 
Prominent figures in opposition parties, both the right-wing BJP and the left-of-centre Janta Dao, have also been implicated. Andrew Whitehead, Delhi. Efforts are continuing off the coast of Wales to save a grounded oil tanker and prevent an environmental disaster. The vessel ran aground five days ago and has spilled more oil than the Exxon Valdez disaster in Alaska. The British Minister for Shipping, Viscount Goshen, says if the vessel isn't refloated, it could be disastrous. We're extremely aware of the environmental sensitivities of this area. It has an extraordinarily beautiful coastline and extremely delicate ecosystem many rare birds, seals and mammals and so forth. It's very clear that if the vessel stays where it is and if we don't enact this plan, it is inevitable that the vessel will break up. The question is how long. Police investigating the IRA bombings in London say they've found significant amounts of explosives and bomb-making equipment during raids in the capital. No arrests were made and two people detained in connection with Sunday's blast on a bus have now been released. There have been angry protests in South Africa by black students who were refused admittance to a school formerly reserved for white children. A South African judge ruled last week that another whites-only school must not stop black children from attending. Those were the top stories in the BBC Newsroom in London. This is Christina Zorich for The World. This is The World. I'm Eddie Mayer in London with Tony Khan in Boston. And now, the nation looks to New Hampshire. Today, voters in the Granite State are casting their ballots in the the first-in-the-nation presidential primary. Voter turnout is high, and the outcome is anybody's guess. The latest polls show that of eight Republicans, the three leaders, Senator Bob Dole, former Tennessee Governor Lamar Alexander, and TV commentator Pat Buchanan, are locked in a statistical dead heat. Anthony Brooks has been out on the campaign trail and prepared this report. Yesterday, the candidates canvassed the state one last time in appearances that were heavy with symbolism. Senator Bob Dole, the would-be president who's lost twice before in New Hampshire, rallied his forces in Milford, telling them his years of experience in Washington make him the man who should be president. And I believe the people of New Hampshire, when they make that choice, are going to ask themselves which one of all these candidates is prepared Yes, prepared and has the experience, and because of the experience can make the judgments. It's going to start right here. It started last week in Iowa. A week ago tonight, we carried Iowa. Tomorrow night, we're going to win New Hampshire. Then we're going to North Dakota, South Dakota, and all over America. But the senator's claim is being challenged by forces that seem to be inspiring real passion in New Hampshire, if not more voters. Pat Buchanan brought his America First campaign to a small New Hampshire sawmill to criticize Canadian and Japanese trade policies a message that resonates with mill workers such as Steve Long. We compete against uh, subsidized lumber uh, from the north. A lot of manufacturers are moving their uh, facilities into Mexico. So what you're talking about really are people's bread and butter issues, That's people's right. jobs right there, there are people here, many people here, who are concerned they're going to have, are they going to have a job in a year? We've got people here with 15, 18, 20 years. Are they going to have work? Steve Long would be part of Buchanan's legion of blue-collar supporters, the peasants, as he calls them, storming over the hill with pitchforks. Buchanan's America First message also caught the interest of several foreign journalists, including this woman. A lot of people are discovering you outside the United States. What do you want to tell them? They're a little bit afraid by you. Well, would you tell them, look, they don't have to be, nobody's got to be afraid of Pat Buchanan as president of the United States. But you ought to know 
that we need a president for the first time in a, in a good while who starts looking out for America and Americans first. We've done a tremendous job in the Cold War, and we did a great job defending Western civilization. And some of our allies have got to realize it's time that they got to bear more of the responsibility themselves for their own defense. 50 years after World War II. If Buchanan's populist rhetoric is angry and exclusive, Lamar Alexander's conservative symbolism at least tries to be inclusive. His 100-mile walk across the state concluded in Portsmouth with scores of supporters wearing the trademark red flannel shirts. Alexander's message of less government is better government is attracting many Granite State Republicans. And yesterday, he repeated again and again his mantra that he is the candidate of fresh ideas. And like Pat Buchanan, Lamar Alexander says even if he doesn't score an outright victory, he'll still be the winner in the eyes of the voters. I think they're likely to look tomorrow, if it's bunched up among three of us, and see a weakened Senator Dole, a Pat Buchanan with a lot of energy, but who can't unite our party and whose views are wrong, and see me coming up with fresh ideas. I'm likely to look like the person who's most likely to beat Bill Clinton and be the best first president of the next century. Even if you're third tomorrow. Even if I'm not first or second. Such is the logic of American politics. If the latest polls are borne out by tonight's results, this primary will offer a confusing verdict by Republican voters. For The World, this is Anthony Brooks reporting. U.S. Commerce Secretary Ron Brown arrives in Kenya today as part of a five-nation African tour designed to promote U.S. investment and trade across Africa. He's also visiting Ghana, Uganda, Botswana and Ivory Coast. His message? It's about time the U.S. started competing with Europe for a larger share of Africa's markets. Job Kahumba is the executive director of the newly opened Nairobi Stock Exchange. He has high hopes for Mr. Brown's visit. A visit by that kind of high-ranking official of the U.S. government for sure must uh, bring quite a bit of hope. The Africa has suffered for quite some time in terms of uh, bad terms of trade, being misunderstood, and sometimes outright bad publicity that may not be fully justified. So we believe that this kind of visit will mean quite a bit and uh, it will uh, make the American people even see the other side. The media sometimes portrays Africa as a place of disaster and nothing more. How would you advise the U.S. to go about uh, tapping into the African market? Clearly, this is something Ron Brown would like to do. How would you advise he does it? First and foremost, we would want Mr. Brown to see for himself, first hand, what is happening in Africa. There is a weed of change that is sweeping across Africa, liberalisation of business, in fact, uh, business in Africa, in very many countries in Africa, especially Kenya, is now quite free. When he sees that for himself and uh, he sees a new enthusiasm by Africa businessmen and he sees what is happening, uh, what the uh, African governments are doing, I'm sure he may change his view and he would encourage American business people to come and uh, do business in this part of the world. Mr. Brown has spoken of a shift from aid to trade with Africa. From the point of view of Africa, what will that mean? This is the most reasonable thing to expect. In the days of underdevelopment, aid was perceived as very useful 
because there were very few skills to develop uh, the resources of Africa. But uh, we now have a growing body of skills that can be utilized to develop Africa or to develop and, uh, you know, exploit the resources of Africa. And uh, it is natural that we should move off, uh, move away from aid to trade. Trade is more acceptable in that uh, uh, you are talking of equal partners. Aid implies that one partner is weaker. But in trade, you are talking about equal partners or partners that have full regard and respect for one another. Job Kahumba, the executive director of the Nairobi Stock Exchange. The BBC offers one of the most extensive news monitoring services in the world. Here are some of the stories making the airwaves around the globe. China is to get its first ever high-speed train. The new China news agency reports that the express service, which will consist of 11 air-conditioned carriages and a dining car, will be a double-decker. The train will also feature the latest in gearing and braking systems. Radio Australia reports that the Tongan government has invalidated most of the passports which it sold under a controversial scheme 13 years ago. The scheme of selling passports, most of which were bought by Asians, was declared unconstitutional by the Tongan Supreme Court. The family of former Philippine leader Ferdinand Marcos is among those who purchased the passports. Botswana and Russia have signed an agreement to cooperate and exchange information on their respective diamond industries. According to the South African news agency SAPA, the two countries also are looking into setting up a forum for liaison among all the world's major diamond producers. Russia and Botswana are the world's largest producers of diamonds. Kazakhstan's National Bank has issued a set of three gold coins that it says are legal tender. Kazakh Radio says the coins, which range in value from $15 to $150, have to be accepted at face value. European integration has remained a great idea, with a great set of obstacles in its way, not the least of which has been France's economic difficulties and political resistance to following anyone else's lead. Today, in what seemed to be an attempt to put the shaky process of integration back on track, French Prime Minister Alain Juppé made a declaration to Parliament that France will be ready to meet the strict conditions for a single European currency by the 1999 deadline. But there's mounting evidence that the French people think the price is just too high. Andrew Bell now reports for the world from Paris. The French have a reputation in the rest of the world for being vigorously nationalistic, a spirit evoked by this lusty rendition of the national anthem de Marseillaise. But as European integration moves on, there's a growing belief here that France is going to be swallowed up in some kind of anonymous European federation, ruled by the big brother next door. Alain Cotta is a professor of economics at Paris Dauphine University and a leading dissident voice in the Europe debate. France uh, has already uh, been annexed by, uh, by Germany. And the pure political matter is effectively to transform uh, the French nation in some kind of uh, regional area of uh, uh, European federations ruled by, by Germans, it's no doubt. This is a, a definite loss of our sovereignty. Nous parlons aujourd'hui de l'Europe 
et plus précisément de l'Union économique et monétaire. Et avant de laisser la parole... In Parliament, the French Prime Minister Alain Juppé has insisted once again there's no alternative to more European integration. And in particular, that means setting up a single currency. ...sur la portée de l'Union économique et monétaire aux yeux du gouvernement. Under the Maastricht Treaty, those countries of the European Union which want to join a single currency and which meet the strict economic conditions must sign up by 1999. Then currencies like the French franc and the German mark will disappear and be replaced by something called the euro. But between what the French government wants and what the French people will accept, there's a growing gap. At the end of last year, there were huge demonstrations around the country. They were provoked by government plans to cut welfare spending, cuts needed to satisfy the very strict economic conditions needed to qualify for the single currency. Didier Ott of the Labour Union Force Ouvrière says his members are fed up with being told they'll have to accept cuts to get the country ready for the single currency. He says the latest row is over government plans to put an unrealistic cap on health spending. We have calculated that uh, such um, an objectives is quite impossible to obtain unless, unless uh, uh, we you suppress uh, uh, more than 10,000 jobs in the public hospital systems. So obviously we have begun to pay and pay very, uh, very dearly the, the policy um, involved by the Maastricht Treaty. French unemployment's now nearly 12% and rising, and many blame European integration. They argue the strict economic policy dictated by Maastricht means artificially high interest rates which companies just can't afford. In the last few weeks, even the most enthusiastic Europeans in France have started to wonder aloud if the rules to join the single currency are just too tough. Pierre Lequillier is a government-supporting member of parliament. If uh, by any chance uh, it is necessary to view certain terms of the criteria. I think as a member of parliament, this has got to be discussed between the, the different countries. But the main thing is to maintain the, the, the countries together in order to make the single currency in 1999. Officially, France remains completely committed to signing up to the single currency on time. But between doubts about handing over the right to control their own money and the economic hardships imposed by the policy, the government may not be able to carry the people with it. For The World, this is Andrew Bell reporting from Paris. You're listening to The World on, among others, KERA Dallas and WGBH Boston from PRI Public Radio International. This broadcast time is made possible in part by a grant from the men and women of McDonnell Douglas West. You're listening to The World on KCRW. This Metro Traffic Report is made possible by the Castle Creek Inn Resort and Spa. Sigler and Mission Viejo on the 5 northbound at Crown Valley Parkway. Right lane in the eastbound Crown Valley Parkway on-ramp still closed due to an overturned big rig on the right shoulder. Traffic backed up out to Jay Sarah. Now in the San Bernardino Mountains, we've got a Sigler at Highway 18. is closed in both directions between Crest Forest Drive and Highway 138. Also, Highway 173 is closed between Grass Valley Road and Arrowhead Lake Road, all due to storm damage. And in Commerce on the 5 northbound is past Garfield Avenue, all lanes completely flooded. Traffic jam now from the 605. I'm Jonathan Chance on KCRW.
This is The World. I'm Tony Khan in Boston. And I'm Eddie Mayer in London. The word witch hunt has taken on a broader meaning these days, but in some parts of Africa it's been taken very literally. In Zambia, more than 15 people died when they were forced to drink lethal potions to prove they were not witches. And in Mozambique, an unspecified number of people reportedly were thrown to crocodiles because they were thought to be guilty of witchcraft. Most of the people accused are women, often the most vulnerable members of a village. Yaba Badoe visited a village in northern Ghana where women are sent after they've been accused of being a witch. <laughs> These singers have all been accused of being witches. They were brought to the village of Gambaga by their families and left in the custody of the local chief, the Gambagana. Zabia, a mother of three and a grandmother, is the spokeswoman of her compound. She was accused of witchcraft by her older brother when his son died. <laughs> When I arrived here, I was full of regret for having bewitched the son of my rival. I prayed that once the Gambagana had accepted me and I was living here with him, my thoughts should never go back to bewitching somebody's child again. Women sent to Gambaga often end up believing they are witches. Zabia now believes that she killed her nephew through a power given to her by God. Like many other religions, fear and mistrust of women's sexuality are a part of African belief systems. But what sort of woman is likely to be accused of witchcraft? Dr. Elizabeth Amwa is head of religious studies at Legon University in Accra, the capital of Ghana. Basically, it's the older women, the lonely women, women who have lost a lot of children. And uh, on the other hand, too, if you have some physical deformities, like or something that is supposed to be not uh, within the norm, like if you have big, red, short eyes, you are supposed to be a witch. If you're a woman, you have long teeth, you're a witch. A woman which is supposed to be conforming to the norm, whether natural or social or economic norm, then you are a witch. In the area surrounding Gambaga, the male head of a family brings a woman accused of witchcraft for a test by ordeal. One of the chief's sons, Zachary, explains what happens. My father, the chief, gets to know if someone is a witch when he slaughters a fowl. If you are accused, you bring him a fowl to slaughter. When it's dying, the fowl struggles. If it dies on its back with its wings facing the sky, then you are exonerated. You are not a witch. But if the fowl dies with its head down, then you are a witch. This is how we prove it. Altogether, 145 witches live on sacred ground beside the chief's palace. Treated as social pariahs, they eke out a living farming and selling firewood. In times of hardship, the government of Ghana provides them with food aid, but the official response is firmly neutral. Jewa was married with two children. Her life was one of physical and verbal abuse until her brother brought her to the relative safety of Gambaga. Unlike other women in the witches' camp, she seems to relish her past. I accepted that I was a witch. I wasn't tried by ordeal or anything because I knew I was a witch. So when I was brought here, I told the Gambagna, I have chopped all those people they're talking about. That is why I'm here. 
the social pressure, the psychological pressure that is uh, put on those who are suspected to be uh, witches. Sometimes they go through all sorts of uh, rituals like drinking, concoction, sometimes they physically abuse them. So to me, I think it's part of the, the pressure that they put on uh, these people who are suspected that make them accept to be witches. So it's, they have internalized this thing. And sometimes some, some of them see it as when they say they are witches, they also have some power. But the power in our, our context is not a, a positive one. For years, the Presbyterian Church in Gambaga has tried to integrate the witches into their congregation. A full-time development officer has recently been appointed and a borehole will soon be sunk to supply them with water, for witches are not welcome at the town's wells. Reverend Michael Awindago has worked closely with the women for over three years. If a young man dies, or maybe if finally maybe a child dies, they will think that maybe something has happened because the uh, system here, we don't believe in natural death. And so if something like that happens, they have to find the cause of the death. And finding the cause of the death, uh, well, this is how these people are brought here. Mm. Now, the, the problem is if you are able to come and pay, it's just like going to a hospital. If you go to a hospital and you are admitted, if you are able to pay your bills, you can go home. But then if you are not able to pay, then they say stay back. <laughs> family has to sacrifice a sheep if she's to leave the Gambagana's custody. If not, she'll be killed if she returns to her village. Some have lived at the camp for over 20 years because their families aren't prepared to pay. My advice to women who come here is stay calm. When they arrive, they think their families are punishing and neglecting them. I tell them to be patient, because we've done what they have accused us of. That's why we're here. Of course your people are angry, but try and stay calm. And when their tempers have cooled down and your family wants you home again, go with them. That's what I tell women here. However, younger women, those still able to have children, are more likely to be taken back by their families. So are men accused of witchcraft. In the 25 years Tia has lived in Gambaga, only three men have been condemned for witchcraft. Men are also witches, but they have the upper hand. They have homes to go, but the woman has no home in our system. That's why they go home. So when the men came here, how long did they stay for? Three years, only three years they went back. And were they friendly with you? Mm. <laughs> they weren't friendly at all. Why weren't they friendly? We didn't want them to be amongst us, they should go. So why are women perceived as witches? According to Zachary and Reverend Awindago, traditional expectations of women are to blame. It's anything at all. That is the African tradition, that women are thrown at the background and women have no say. And that is how I've seen it. Because men can equally be witches. 
But why are the men not brought? Even if the, a man is brought, the man is go, gone back home. But the women, being the weaker sex, will have to go back. Basically, many religions, be it Christianity, Islam, and so on and so forth, have their, the way they interpret their scriptures, the way they interpret their beliefs, sometimes damage women a lot. Because it's the men who are doing the interpretations for long. Now women are collecting the traditional belief systems and analyzing it from their women's point of view. Yababadoe reporting for the world from the village of Gambaga in Ghana. Hello, my name is Sharif Khan. I live in Georgetown, Guyana, and you're listening to The World. This is PRI, Public Radio International. The South Bay Center for the Performing Arts at El Camino College presents a tribute to jazz legend Joe Pass, featuring Elliot Fisk and the Turtle Island String Quartet on Friday, February 23rd. Named Best Classical Guitarist in Guitar Player Reader's Poll, Elliot Fisk is a sure match for Turtle Island's jazz mastery. Elliot Fisk and the Turtle Island String Quartet honor the legacy of Joe Pass on Friday, February 23rd at South Bay Center for the Arts. For tickets, call 1-800-832-ARTS. Still to come on our program, Serbs desperate to leave Sarajevo take over the mayor's office demanding fuel and transportation. I'm Eddie Mayer in London. And I'm Tony Khan in Boston. Ophebia Quistarkton goes to New Hampshire to find out just why is it the first in the nation. Plus businesses booming in Thailand for fortune tellers. First, the news. For the world, this is Christina Zoric in the BBC Newsroom in London. Bosnian Serbs from parts of Sarajevo due to be handed over to the Muslim Croat Federation are in a state of confusion following an announcement by their own authorities that they must leave within three days. Rajko Koprivica, the Serb mayor of one suburb, speaking through an interpreter, says most people are desperate to get out. Up to now, nobody said that they want to stay. Up to now, it was 100% to go. But the biggest problem is... Uh, that everybody wants to leave in one go. They're very scared to, to remain here. There's been a steady turnout of voters in New Hampshire, where the nation's first presidential primary is being held. On the Republican side, it's turned into a fierce race between the top three candidates, Bob Dole, Pat Buchanan and Lamar Alexander. Police investigating the IRA bombings in London say they've found significant amounts of explosives and bomb-making equipment during raids in the capital. No arrests were made and two people detained in connection with Sunday's blast on a bus have now been released. 
Russian troops in Chechnya are reported to have recaptured the oiled town of Novogroznensky, which was seized last week by separatists. The Chechen forces abandoned the town after a heavy bombardment. Andrew Harding reports. After withstanding a furious three-day bombardment, the Chechens said the final straw came when Russian planes dropped a number of powerful bombs on the town centre. The local elders then urged the fighters to leave to prevent more bloodshed. A handful of civilians who also managed to walk out of Novogroznensky across the fields said dozens of people had been killed and that much of the town centre now lay in ruins. But many more people remain trapped in their homes. Andrew Harding in eastern Chechnya. Two senior Iraqi defectors and their families have returned to Iraq six months after they fled to Jordan, calling for the overthrow of President Saddam Hussein. Iraqi television said President Saddam had agreed to allow the men, his sons-in-law, to return home after receiving a request three days ago. The political wing of the Basque separatist organization, ETA, has again spoken out strongly against Spanish government moves to ban it. Carlos Rodriguez, a senior member of the political wing, said the call by the government was a tactic designed to influence next month's general election, but he declined to condemn recent killings blamed on the Basque separatists. No, we don't. We think that these killings and this violence, like other violence, they are the the effect of a real cause, of a real political uh, problem. We have been asking for a negotiation for process for many years. The U.S. has said there were serious flaws in last week's general elections in Bangladesh, but it says both the government and the opposition must take the blame. In London, this is Christina Zorich for The World. This is The World. I'm Tony Khan in Boston with Eddie Mayer in London. Amid chaotic scenes, anxious Bosnian Serbs, fearful about what the future holds, are trying to pack up and leave their Sarajevo homes before the Muslim Croat Federation takes over next month. At one stage today, the mayor's office was besieged by Serb civilians demanding to leave. Krisinovsky of the UN High Commission for Refugees is among those trying to persuade the Serbs that their future lies in Sarajevo. There are a lot of extremely unhelpful statements on uh, Bosnian Serb radio, Bosnian Serb television, essentially inciting fear, trying to, in a not very subtle way, to tell people uh, to leave and, and basically leave Serb Sarajevo and go and live in the middle of nowhere, even though it so obviously is against their interest and against the interests of the city. What kind of scenes have uh, you been aware of today? I'm thinking in particular of the situation in the mayor's office where uh, there were reports of something approaching panic. A lot of people were totally confused about what was going on because their own propaganda. I mean, at the same time, they are getting from, from, from the side of the international community that everything is going to be okay. The message that we're trying to get over to them is that after March 19th, when all these areas are supposed to have come under uh, the control of the uh, Bosnian Croat Federation, people will be able to leave and will be able to return. So the situation isn't as tense as some people uh, choose to believe. Nonetheless, it's, it's not very helpful for the future of the area, is it, if so many thousands of people are trying to get out? In terms of the ethnic mix, which is, after all, what everyone's trying to achieve... You hit the nail on the head. I mean, that's what we're also extremely worried about, since they are trying to create more displacement in an area which is already completely saturated with displaced people. But in addition to that, in the longer term, which, if they do stay, will be more multi-ethnic and... Uh, probably more comfortable for them to live in. Is it too late to 
try to counter some of the propaganda which has led to these people going? Well, we're still, we've tried to counter that propaganda and we're still trying to do it. But uh, for some Serbs uh, in Sarajevo, uh, all these efforts are, are too late. And even though we do hope that at some point the people will realise that uh, perhaps they can go back and will certainly be uh, pushing with the Bosnian government to allow any Serbs who have left uh, to come back, no matter how... Uh, how late they may decide to do it. Thank you very much indeed for taking the time to talk to us. We're very grateful to you. Krishnovsky, spokesman with the United Nations High Commission for Refugees. It's the moment of truth for the Republican presidential candidates in New Hampshire. For about 30 days every four years, this tiny state captures the headlines and the imagination of the nation. Pollsters, pundits, politicians have long regarded New Hampshire as the pulse of America's political future. Our U.S. roving reporter, Ophebia Quistarkton, wondered why. So we sent her into the chili fray for her first taste, al dente, of American presidential politics. First the caucuses, now the kickoff primary. Just as I was digesting one, I'm thrust into the other and find myself asking a thousand questions about the puzzling presidential polling system here in the US. Why the primary? Indeed, why New Hampshire, this small, predominantly white rural state that has become a political bellwether? Well, I think New Hampshire thrives on this because they're always so ignored nationally until this happens. So when this happens, they feel like they're a part of the nation and not just sitting back in a corner. Who's to say that the people of New Hampshire, I mean, I'm very proud that they think that New Hampshire is going to be the one to tell the whole world who the president's going to be. I guess maybe it's just always been that way. I have a feeling it's got to do with the uh, live free or die motto. These people are hard to please. These are tough people to convince that Washington has any role at all in their life. Well, I'm still confused, so I went in search of an answer from Charles Brereton, a self-confessed reformed primary junkie and author of a comprehensive study called First in the Nation, New Hampshire and the Premier Presidential Primary. I wanted to know how representative New Hampshire was of the United States. People seem to think we have too much power here in New Hampshire. Why should this small state of 1.1 million be able to dictate to everybody? But we really don't do that. Speaking in his apartment with a bird's-eye view of Concord's Golden Dome State House, Charles Brereton told me how the primary works in New Hampshire. What we do is we tend to rebel when the media says, after two contests, this race is going to be over. If Bob Dole had beaten George Bush here in 88, the race would have been over. What we want to do, and we tend to do this, is we tend to open up the system. We empower the rest of the country to have the opportunity to look at all these candidates before the media tries to shut the race down. With a sense of adventure, I joined the invasion of New Hampshire by the media and the presidential wannabes. Senator Bob Dole is campaigning in Portsmouth. As he mingles with the voters, his conversation is peppered with humorous comments, a side of him I hadn't noticed. Do you think age goes against you, Senator? Do you think age goes against you? I don't think so. You know, I, I think the other guys are still sleeping. I'm over here. And while she was climbing into a waiting campaign car, Elizabeth Dole gave us this answer to the same question about her husband's age. When they see him, they know he's got the energy of 10 people. He released a 40 years of medical reports that showed him to be in excellent health. His weight, his cholesterol, they were lower than President Clinton's. <laughs> but we won't make health an issue in this campaign. With all the hype and the hoopla, I canvassed opinion myself at a local watering hole in Portsmouth, where voters were still sizing up the candidates and the campaign. Oh, Forbes is true to his words. Let's get him in there, you know. That'd be great. 
you know, take it out of the little guy. This flat tax with Steve Forbes, I don't know whether it's going to help me or hurt me. I'd probably go with Dole or Forbes, and I don't even want to say that I'd want to go with either of those guys. They're all being wishy-washy, I think. I like Buchanan a little bit, but he's too radical. As I head for another photo opportunity, Pat Buchanan this time, I'm still trying to figure out the endorsement procedure in America. Who endorses whom? You know, in the elections I've covered in Africa, governments often control influential sections of the media, and opposition-owned newspapers have an obvious bias. But I'm really surprised that the media here can quite openly declare themselves for a candidate. You got a proper, got a chair for you, got a set, okay? And uh, the chair belongs to you. Slick public relations here, Pat Buchanan has invited us, the media, to observe Pat Buchanan making a political TV advertisement. He's got campaign staff buzzing all around him, but Mr. Buchanan has decided he's directing the show himself. Okay, let me try, read. Quiet on the set. Five, four, three, two, one. Friends, have you noticed? But my curiosity peaked with an invitation to the New Hampshire Christian Coalition's God and Country Rally. I've heard and read so much about the influence of the coalition. The rally was a natural stage for Mr Buchanan's fiery rhetoric, but I also got the chance to listen to other presidential candidates who get far less media attention. Ambassador Alan Tease, candidate for the 1996 Republican presidential nomination. But I have to tell you tonight, now brace yourselves because this is the part some of you won't want to hear. We want to sit around on stages and talk about the flat tax and the trade and the jobs and this and that, and you can pretend if you like that that is the major source of this country's problems, but in your heart you know that that's a lie. Another presidential hopeful who wowed the audience with his own brand of fire was the Republican Congressman Robert Dornan from California. He says he's the best man for the White House. Bob Dole has passed nothing this year that's become law. Dick Lugar's farm bill is not yet in the House. And Graham said it, I will now return to my work in the Senate. I never left my work in the House as a double chairman. We voted 302 times more than the other side. There's my fanfare. God bless you. I want your vote. Well, Robert Donan may not be a front-runner in today's poll, but I found that despite media saturation, New Hampshire voters are independent-minded enough to make their own decisions about the primary. Uh, I, I think I need to reevaluate, and it certainly could be Mr. Dornan or Mr. Keyes, right? Love to see them in the White House. Now, whatever I may have thought about New Hampshire, I find people here seem to live up to their state's motto, live free or die. Reporting for The World, this is Ophebia Quistarkton in the Granite State. Time once again to test your geographical wits. This island was known in the 1940s as the poorhouse of the Caribbean, but it now has one of Latin America's highest per capita incomes. Electronics and petrochemicals have overtaken agriculture here as the major economic activity. The island is tucked between the Atlantic Ocean and the Caribbean Sea. Its varied topography includes high desert, lush mountains, sandy beaches and a rainforest. Its colonial capital city is home to one of the biggest natural harbors in the region and lies on a key shipping lane to the Panama Canal. Have you reached its port yet? If not, we'll help you get there when we return with the answer in just a few minutes.
Modern-day Thailand has one of the fastest-growing economies in Asia, but it's an industry centuries old which is now enjoying an unexpected boom. A recent survey conducted by one of the leading Thai banks says that fortune tellers are earning about 4 million baht, about 160 million dollars a year, and business looks set to grow. Cory Dobb in Bangkok looks at what's behind the upturn in the fortunes of the Thai fortune tellers. <laughs> Mu Yong is a household name in Thailand. He exercises his prophetic powers on television, in the newspapers and in private for those who can afford his rates. He also produces these fortune-telling cassettes to predict what's in store next year for people born on a certain day of the week. The Buddhist year of 2539 will be a prosperous one, he says, for people born on Thursday, and it's also a year of change and success. Such tapes, books and, of course, the psychic services of fortune consultants are in hot demand. It is a booming industry now, and it has a potential to grow really well in the future. Trungchai Suksidi Sedikun carries out studies and surveys on social trends for the Thai Farmers Bank. Because of the rapid changes brought about by fast economic development, life has become confusing and risky, she says. Our socialization seems to depress people quite a lot because we want to keep up our economic level. So people pressure quite a lot. It's the political climate in Thailand that's largely responsible for the boom in his business, according to Kun Tong, a renowned tarot card reader. In a smart cafe in central Bangkok, Kun Tong receives up to 10 clients a day. People in Bangkok, they live life in the fast lane, you know, the high cost of living and have to work real hard. They have a lot of depression, stress at work and the traffic, everything, they get frustrated. To check out whether I was on the right track, I headed down to one of Bangkok's enormous shopping centres, where in among the muddle of noodle stores and electronic shops, fortune tellers abound. What's your teller? In your hand. How much is it? 500 baht. 500 baht? Yes. Okay. Oh, your bottle. Let me hear, you know? Oh, this year, very good for you, this year. Uh, okay, your, your hand, your hand. Lucky hand, lucky hand. Do you live long life? Maximum 85 years old, minimum 75. Whether an occasional encounter with a fortune teller can offset the problems of modern life or not, Trung Chai Suksiri Serikun says the conservative nature of Thai society rules out more confrontational options. In Thai society, when people have a mental problem, instead of uh, seek help from uh, psychiatrists, in this society, it seems to be kind of taboo. Instead, they go to see fortune teller. Every day in the lobby of the upmarket Montian Hotel, 12 tables are set aside for palm readers, astrologers and tarot readers to offer their services. There's a hushed atmosphere, but the stream of clients is constant. I consulted a few of them to find out why they'd come. Someone have told me that uh, if I come to meet a fortune teller, uh, maybe I will 
feel better about my trouble. I just come to look because some friend told me that is a something something when you have some problem, yeah, they can dis you you can discuss with them or something like that. It's a habit because uh, maybe you can prepare for something. If you tell it's not so good, then we can prepare to accept the situation. Maybe you can help. <laughs> Guri Dob reporting from Bangkok. Now, for today's geography quiz, we were looking for an island once known as the Poor House of the Caribbean, but which now has one of Latin America's highest per capita incomes. Okay, here's one final clue: the country used to be a Spanish colony, but became a U.S. territory at the turn of the century. Got it? The answer is the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico. This is PRI, Public Radio International. You're listening to The World on KCRW. This Metro traffic report is made possible by Natural Hairs. In Mission Viejo, we can cancel a SIG alert on the 5 northbound at Crown Valley Parkway. Right lane and the eastbound Crown Valley Parkway on-ramp are now open. Due to an overturned big rig earlier, it had been closed. Traffic still recovering, though, from Jay Sarah. Sherman Oaks on the 405 southbound before the Ventura Freeway multi-vehicle accident taking away the two left lanes. Some problems working in Pico Rivera still on the 605 northbound just past Rose Hills Road. Three-vehicle non-injury accident on the right shoulder has you backed up out to the five. In the high desert, we got some problems. Beer Valley Road at Hesperia, we've got an accident. And in Apple Valley, Beer Valley Road right at Kiowa, we've got a non-injury accident. Brea Canyon on the 57 southbound before Lambert. Look out for an accident involving a big rig in a car taking away the number three lane. Jonathan Chance on KCRW. This is The World. I'm Eddie Mayer in London. And I'm Tony Khan in Boston. Little seems straightforward or solvable about the international drug problem. Drug lords come and go with numbing regularity, but little seems to change. In a recent development, the New York Times claims the Clinton administration is considering officially decertifying Mexico as an ally in the drug war, an act that could cost Mexico some U.S. foreign aid. Mexico's consul in New York, Jorge Pinto, says that Mexico has objected to this so-called process of certification for a decade. This position has been made public by the Mexican government since the certification process began in 1986. So we consistently have expressed our opposition or our concern regarding this procedure. And what has the State Department uh, said in response to your objections, which you well, say have been going on for 10 years now? Right. Well, we, we have moved uh, into a more, how do you would call it, uh, that means cooperation in, the, in this issue is fundamental. That means uh, it is a chain that comes from production to the transport, uh, which occurs uh, through Mexico, unfortunately, uh, through distribution, which occurs in the States, and eventually consumption. You could not blame only one part of a chain of a very complicated trade. That was Mexican consul Jorge Pinto speaking to me from New York, but the view from Washington may be a little different. It was just a month ago that American officials were full of praise for Mexico after authorities turned over the country's most wanted drug lord. 
Well, if past accolades turn to accusations, Nicholas Burns is a spokesman with the State Department. By law, the Secretary of State and the President have to certify every year, uh, and the date this year will be uh, March 1st, that uh, a number of countries in the world either are in compliance with our efforts to fight narcotics trafficking, or they are not. In this case, um, I can tell you we have not made a decision on Mexico or on Colombia or in any of the other countries that are involved. We will be making decisions very shortly, and we'll announce them uh, publicly on March 1st. But does this mean, since you can't say yes, that you perhaps have some some reason for concern? No, it doesn't. It only means that Mexico is one of the countries that is being uh, looked at, and I'm trying very carefully, and I hope successfully, just to let you know that... Um, that we have not made a decision, and there's no positive or negative uh, implication associated with that. There has been a, a, a statement from some Latin American countries that this represents uh, interference in their internal affairs. What do you have to say about that? Uh, all I can say is it's the law. The, the Congress wrote the law in the way that it did. It, it, it demands The law demands that uh, each administration every year assess how well the war on drugs is going and that if certain countries are not cooperating in narcotics interdiction that we, so, we say so publicly. State Department spokesman Nicholas Burns. Prehistoric erotic cave paintings discovered in northern Brazil have been adapted for costumes in today's carnival parade in Rio de Janeiro. But the judges of the parade, which started last night and ends tomorrow, Ash Wednesday, have suggested that they may deduct points from the apparently lewd costumes. So what can they look like? The world's Polygobi reports. The festivity is a time to unleash desire and sexuality. Brazilian anthropologist Roberto da Mata, a Harvard graduate, has published several books on carnival. Sexuality, as we all know, in modern times has become a source of, of desire, but at the same time, it's a taboo. It's very complex, it's very difficult. Everybody's searching for good sex, but it seems that good sex is far away from everybody. So Carnival makes this available. It shows that sex is like uh, everything else in life. You know, it should be not be so mysterious. It should be open. But now, the sexual nature of Carnival may have opened up too far. The background to the present scandal in Rio began, in fact, thousands of years ago. Milton Cunha, a Carnivalesco, the designer of the Carnival costumes that are the center of scandal, explains. 17,000 years ago, the primitive Indians they painted in the stone sexual figures, but it's not just one or two. It's about 100 people making sex. So we will have penis and vaginas in the seventh float. And so it happened that Milton Cunha and his dancing group in the two-day parade that typifies carnival in Rio are dressing up as 16 male genitals and 16 female genitals. The primary group of dancers in Carnival are Rio de Janeiro's samba schools. Each school plans its costumes and floats months in advance. One of the most prestigious samba schools is Beja Flor, Milton Cunha School, and they are responsible for the very sexual display in the Carnival Parade. Roberto da Mata, the Brazilian anthropologist, is well aware that Beja Flor is dressing up in costumes that may seem taboo to some, but he says that's the way Carnival works. They combine tragic pieces of reality, but they're presenting in, in a festive way. 
But it's very interesting that in many societies, the poor assumed revolution or revolt in order to express their views. And in Brazil, in a way, we substitute that. And instead of revolting through political protest or protestation, we revolt through festivities. Milton Cunha, the designer of the lusty costumes, is hoping that the carnival judges are sympathetic to his need to create an exciting environment for the Beja Flor Samba School and the other participants in carnival. For us, carnival is very special because we are poor, we have no hope for tomorrow, so it's very important for us once in a year uh, to show uh, during the, the parade our happiness. Do you afraid that maybe you lose points because of this? No, 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 of course no. The final decision will be in the hands of the judges tomorrow when they release the scores for the costumes of the Samba schools. Reporting for the world, this is Paula Gobi in Rio de Janeiro. <laughs> And we'll leave you today with the sounds of Brazil's Carnaval. This song is called Imperatriz, after one of Rio's famous samba schools. It's part of Grupo Especial, a special CD recorded for this year's Carnaval by over a thousand samba musicians. Ooh. The song tells the story of Leopoldina, an Austrian princess who traveled to Rio to marry Brazil's emperor, Dom Pedro. <laughs> And that's all today from the world. Our program was produced by Philip Martin in Boston and Brian Jarman in London and directed by Yun Sung Khan and William Troop. The series editors are Carol Hills and Marifi Chicote. Neil Curry is the executive producer. I'm Tony Khan in Boston. And I'm Eddie Mayer in London. Thanks for listening and join us again tomorrow for another edition of The World. World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston, and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. PRI, Public Radio International.